Welcome to the Remote Warfare Programme podcast. In this episode, we have a recording of a panel from the Conceptualising Remote Warfare Conference, which the Remote Warfare Programme held in collaboration with the University of Kent on the 28th of February and 1st of March. The conference pulled together a wide range of experts from the military, government, academia and civil society to discuss the past, present and future of remote warfare as well as the implications of this approach. We couldn't have organised a conference without the support of the Conflict Analysis User Centre at the University of Kent and the British International Studies Association. If you like what you hear at this podcast, you can hear more panels in our upcoming episodes and you can read more depth in more depth about the topics in our upcoming book released in early 2020. For now, enjoy the podcast. We're going to follow up on a theoretical discussion this morning about, you know, the concept of remote warfare. What is it that we're talking about um, to do a bit more of a deep dive into one of the issues um, that we've seen come up uh, through our research into remote warfare itself, which is oversight and accountability. So I'm absolutely thrilled to have a panel of friends and experts here with me. Um, so from, from left to right, which will not be the order of presentation, but anyway, we've got Yvonne Estatiu from IISS. Um, who will be looking at regime type and remote warfare. Um, we've also got Aditi Gupta here from the APPG on drones, uh, Jennifer Gibson from Reprieve, and Liam and Megan from the remote warfare program team. So we're stacking the panel today, but I promise to be a fair arbiter nonetheless. So without further ado, I'm going to hand over to um, our presenters. We've got Aditi up first, so I'm going to put your slides up here. And I will endeavour to be as good at timing as Abby was this morning. You've set a high bar. There we go. So you've just got the mouse here to click through. Okay, great. And the floor is yours. Thanks. <laughs> all right. So hi, everyone. Thank you for having me, uh, all of you. I'm going to uh, give a presentation on remote warfare and what we're kind of calling the hollowing out of parliament or really the undermining of parliament. So last summer, the APPG on Drones published its report uh, culminating a two-year cross-party inquiry into the UK's use of drones and its partnerships. Uh, the drone is seen by us as a key symbol of remote warfare and where a number of concerns about the transparency, accountability and legality of this form of warfare coalesce. One of the key findings of the report was that currently military capabilities and partnerships manifested by remote warfare are far outpacing existing processes for Parliament to have an effective role in approving and scrutinising deployment of force. This presentation builds on the findings of our inquiry report and the recommendations and outlines the particular concerns the group put forward in response to the ongoing Parliamentary uh, Administration and Constitutional Affairs Committee inquiry on what is Parliament's role in authorising the use of force. So, constitutionally, there's a big debate as to what Parliament's role here is. Um, the armed forces of the United Kingdom are deployed under the royal prerogative, first used by the monarch and now used by the government and its ministers. Since the vote on the Iraq war in 2003, there's been building pressure for reform and a convention of seeking parliamentary approval before troops are deployed have, has developed. While this convention is hotly debated, the APPG's position within this debate is that the group recognises that the fundamental role of the state is to protect its citizens. This may lead from time to time to exceptional circumstances requiring exceptional action. However, balancing this is the need in our society for the highest possible degree of democratic consent. For these reasons, the APPG believes that Parliament should have a strong and central role in the authorisation and deployment of force in all but exceptional circumstances. 
Parliament's ability to debate, vote on and provide oversight over military force underpins essential pillars of democracy. For the rare occasions where a pre-deployment vote is not possible, mechanisms to enable post-hoc scrutiny within Parliament must be strengthened and formalised. Similarly, the Convention on Ministerial Accountability provides an important framework for accountability and oversight. So, why is Parliament's role important? While public support for military personnel remains high in the UK, according to recent studies, support for military operations has declined over the past decades. Should the military engage in increasingly remote coalition and clandestine actions, some have predicted that military support for personnel will also decline, with the civil-military gap expanding due to the lack of knowledge about their activities. Recognising the importance of Parliament's role in engendering trust and support for deployment of force, the Constitutional Convention has been strengthened and institutionalised to bring this area of the British government up to date with modern democracy. Most prominently, it was set out in writing in the Cabinet Manual in 2011. The Convention was again underlined following the parliamentary votes concerning military invention in Libya in 2011, Syria in 2013 and Iraq in 2014. Efforts to uphold the Constitutional Convention have already been seen in the reforms and strengthening of key committees' mandates, for example, the ISC. As pointed out by former Chair Sir Malcolm Rifkind, this was done in response to growing acknowledgement of the need to modernise and strengthen parliamentary oversight of the intelligence community in which Parliament and the public can have full confidence. But for any convention to be meaningful, its terms must be well established and the means to uphold its obligations robust. Currently, the military capabilities and partnerships manifested by remote warfare are far outpacing the existing procedures for Parliament to have an effective role. Parliament's ability to um, approve and scrutinise a deployment of military force is being undermined in four key ways. First, unconventional methods of deploying force. So traditional understanding of deploying force is associated with conventional forces going to war. However, current practice shows an increase in the deployment of force by unconventional methods that marginalise the need for parliamentary approval or even knowledge of military action. This is a development that is predicted to increase in the future, as outlined in our report. Examples include deployment of drones for surveillance purposes and sharing that intelligence to potentially aid targeting for partner strikes. The use of special forces instead of regular troops and the provision of capabilities to allies like embedded troops, intelligence and advise and assist activities. The APPG inquiry, as well as years of reporting by many organisations in the room today, shows there's growing evidence of the UK's taking on military commitments via these methods and through working with partners without Parliament's explicit authorisation. Crucially, when this facilitates or assists partners' lethal strikes in conflicts the UK isn't party to, and where differing rules of engagement risk and lawful action, there is a distinct lack of process to ensure Parliament is informed, let alone its approval sought. The lack of government transparency on its policies and working definitions has caused unease for many, and further undermines Parliament's ability to scrutinise government use of force. For example, the government recently confirmed there is no official definition of combat and non-combat operations or a set list of criteria. In practice, this allows many forms of military deployment to slip through the cracks of parliamentary knowledge and oversight, as non-combat operations, however they may be defined, are not disclosed to or voted in in Parliament. The APPG inquiry report highlights the significance of this lack of official definition when looking at use of force via drone. For example, currently drones operating on non-combat missions are not disclosed or voted on in Parliament. Drones were deployed on this non-combat basis in Syria for reconnaissance purposes following the 2013 vote that explicitly forbade deployment of force on that territory. 
However, the 2015 strike on Riyadh Khan in Syria revealed a president to use these same drones to carry out targeted strikes in the absence of any parliamentary authority for UK use of force in that country. While there may be reasonable barriers to parliamentary authorization prior to a strike, as has been argued to be the case with the Riyadh Khan strike, as it stands, even post hoc scrutiny of strikes like this one is not adequate due to the sensitivities around the intelligence and legal basis for military action. Both the Joint Committee on Human Rights and the Intelligence and Security Committee inquiries into this strike expressed disappointment in the government in failing to address crucial questions and provide adequate information that would have enabled them to assess the legality of the strike and evaluate UK policy. The template for enabling emergency action and then reporting back to Parliament was seen again in April 2018 when the Prime Minister authorised strikes in Syria against the Assad regime in concert with the US. However, without having robust means for post-hoc scrutiny, like the Riyadh Khan strike in 2015, there remains no holistic means for assessing the legal, intelligence and strategic basis of what is effectively the involvement of the UK in a new conflict in the region, especially against the mandate agreed by Parliament. Finally, recent efforts by the Government and Attorney General have expanded legal definitions and produced ambiguous policy positions that essentially work to negate the Constitutional Convention and put individuals at risk. For instance, our inquiry report found that the norms guiding the use of force appeared to have been stretched, allowing for a broader application of force rooted in an expansive and previously rejected US-style definition of imminence. Recent comments by Boris Johnson and Gavin Williamson have implied that strikes have been motivated by revenge for previous actions and suggest a broadening of when, where and under what circumstances an individual can be killed. So, Ultimately, for the convention governing the oversight and accountability for use of force to be meaningful, terms must be well established and the means to uphold it robust. As I've outlined, lack of clarity concerning the government's policy on the use of force permits wide-ranging discretion to define what policies mean, undermining democratic accountability and the constitutional convention. The failure to disclose official definitions to Parliament and the subsequent lack of meaningful oversight and accountability due to the lack of information provided provided to Parliament can work to reinforce public mistrust in British military operations. Without this clarity, Parliament is unable to ensure UK compliance with domestic and international law. This doesn't come without its risks. When it comes to British assistance or partnership with allies, this lack of parliamentary oversight and accountability may have important consequences. The APPG inquiry found that UK military personnel and ministers may be at risk of criminal liability for providing assistance and allies potentially unlawful actions. If the person's targeted as a civilian, this can amount to a war crime. So, looking ahead, as we enter an era of military operations in which remote warfare and collaborative actions are likely to become central elements of UK deployment of force, the rapid development of a complementary legal framework is crucial to ensure democratic accountability and legitimacy of operations. According to the 2012 Democratic Audit, Parliament's influence over the use of force is amongst the weakest in the EU. In fact, by comparison to their European counterparts, developments in Britain in military capabilities have greatly outrun the legal framework, leaving oversight inadequate. The APBG inquiry highlighted three cross-cutting areas where Parliament's current ability to hold the government to account, debate policy and provide support for government mili military actions is severely lacking. These are targeted killing outside areas of existing military action, so this is a policy consistently denied by the government, despite growing evidence to the contrary. The Joint Committee on Human Rights found it did have such a policy, plus the MOD stated it itself in a now-deleted line in a policy document. 
the UK's process for mitigating civilian casualties, similarly questions challenging the MOD's zero civilian casualty stance, incredible reports regarding incidents are routinely dismissed, and the provision of intelligence and other forms of assistance to the widely criticized US drone program. Again, questions concerning the legality and implications of providing intelligence to the US for its strikes in areas where the UK is not party to the conflict are dismissed out of hand. These are only three issues that illustrate the changing nature of legal and ethical challenges that the UK is facing and must be coupled with policy and legal debate in real time to ensure Britain adheres to its national and international obligations. To sum up, we are at the dawn of a new generation of military capabilities. While increased integration of partnerships continue to improve military efficiency, this development may also challenge the democratic, lawful and effective use of force. The best way to ensure UK deployment of force adheres to these principles in future operations is by grounding the decision-making process in Parliament. As such, it is crucial that Britain pursues the development of democratic accountability, scrutiny and oversight that can match the rapid development of military capabilities. Domestically, this will increase the legitimacy of military deployment and improve democratic accountability. Furthermore, it will guarantee that Britain retains power over the deployment of force when participating in supranational coalitions. Finally, it will provide protection for British personnel and civilians abroad and strengthen the UK's position internationally as a global standard set in the deployment of force. With these broad aims in mind, the APPG on drones has set out 18 recommendations aimed at reinforcing Parliament's role in the deployment of military force, specifically via drones. These recommendations cover operational, legal, partnership and oversight elements and focus on securing adequacy of information, clarification of policies and definitions and means of oversight. I'm not going to go into them now because that will be another <laughs> presentation, but thank you for your time. And the 12 minutes on the dot, I can only congratulate you because that was, that was a tour de force. I was slightly worried for a moment where you were like, in conclusion, I was like, wow, she's got three minutes left. This is going to be fantastic. Thank you so much for sticking to time. Jen, if we can move straight on to you next. I believe I've got your slides here. Um, there we go. She set you a hard task. Oh, I, I think it's a task I probably won't meet, so I'll just keep it. <laughs> 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 was much more precise than I'm going to be. Okay, wait, just on uh, that one. This one? Yeah, that one. Okay. Um, hi, thank you for having me. Um, for those of you who don't know Reprieve, and I know some of you in the room do, some of you might not, Reprieve is a London-based charity uh, that works on two things, the abolition of the death penalty and what we nominally call abuses in counterterrorism, uh, which has, uh, that work started uh, shortly after Guantanamo opened and since then we've worked on Guantanamo renditions, um, illegal detentions and drones since 2011. Um, what I'm going to talk about is an area of work and some of our litigation that's kind of started to straddle two areas which is not just remote warfare in the terms of the drone, but also the increasing use of signals intelligence as means of identifying targets in strikes. And we've currently got uh, two cases, or one case now running in the US courts on this. And so I'm gonna talk a little bit about how the mass surveillance debate is also bleeding into the remote warfare debate uh, because of big data and how in the countries where I work, Yemen, Pakistan, Somalia, uh, what here is considered a privacy concern there can be a matter of life and death. So um, you may all know or you may not know that there was a bit of a debate last year, probably about a year ago now, um, on something called Project Maven and Google's involvement in Project Maven. Project Maven is a DOD project 
looking to kind of build ties with Silicon Valley to bring AI, um, artificial intelligence, into the U.S. military uh, uh, in a much more systematic way. Google employees found out, um, not through Google initially, uh, that Google had signed contracts with Project Maven that they hadn't publicly disclosed. Uh, and for the first time ever, we saw employees inside a private company working with DOD actively pushing the company to change its policies on, on working with DOD. You had the employees not just um, go public after initially being very quiet and trying to handle it internally, but you had over 4,000 employees sign a letter to Google saying we're not in the business of war, our policies do no harm. Uh, you then had several resignations, uh, which gained quite a bit of publicity over the issue, and ultimately Google dropping their contract or the renewal of the contract with Project Maven going forward. Google's not the only guy doing this, and I, I, Google has now put out a set of ethical principles, which is a start towards how they're going to deal with uh, the intersection of their military contracts um, and human rights concerns that have been raised by their employees. Many others are involved. Amazon is involved. Um, Microsoft is involved. There were several reports right after this of um, several other lesser-known names signing contracts. So it's, it's an issue that's going to continue and one that, that's not done. Faisal bin Ali Jabbar is the man in this picture. Uh, he wrote a letter to Google shortly after news broke, um, which said, my name is Faisal bin Ali Jabbar. You do not know me, but you should. I'm one of the thousands of you many to have been directly impacted by the US's covert drone program in my country. Faisal, here's why Faisal cares. Faisal's brother-in-law was killed in a drone strike in August of 2012. He was an imam in Yemen who actually, three days prior to being killed in the drone strike, had preached against Al-Qaeda. His family was so concerned about him having preached against Al-Qaeda, they thought Al-Qaeda would come kill him. So they, um, when three young men came to the village a couple of days later looking for him, they naturally suspected he might be in harm's way. They went to the mosque to see him. He took his nephew, who was the only local police officer, one of two in the village, to go out to meet the men for security, and all five were killed in a drone strike. Nobody in the village knows who the three men were, the three men traveled across probably 20 or 30 kilometers of open desert before hitting the village. They passed three checkpoints um, at which they were checked. Faisal has been fighting to get answers as to why his relatives were killed since 2012. He took his case all the way to the appellate courts and did DC circuit, uh, where he lost in a two to one decision on something called political question where the US courts have historically said on matters like this or increasingly in the post 9-11 environment, uh, this is a matter for the executive branch. We don't have um, jurisdiction to look at the matter. In a scathing dissent, Justice Brown, um, Judge Dennis Brown wrote that the, um, the decision was effectively, that oversight was effectively a joke, that congressional oversight was non-existent, um, and that she was extremely distressed that the um, that this was an outsourced power being used by the government inappropriately. Faisal has continued, despite losing in the D.C. District Court, to try to raise concerns about the program, and here's why. Faisal's strike was something called a signature strike, in all likelihood. 
The U.S. takes two kinds of strikes. They take um, what gets lots of publicity, kill list strikes, where the idea that the U.S. has a list of named individuals, they're all bad, those are the guys they're going after. And then they take a significant amount, and we don't know how many, signature strikes, which are strikes based on patterns of behavior. Patterns of behavior, we don't know how it's interpreted. Uh, what we do know, thanks to General Michael Hayden, um, who I suspect regrets making the statement he made, um, is that some of that is met metadata and that some of the killing that's going on is based on metadata. So signals intelligence gathered through mass surveillance programs. Uh, we don't know whether Faisal's case was pure metadata. We don't know whether Faisal's case was signals intelligence mixed with some human intelligence. We don't even know who the target was in Faisal's case. All we know from a leaked media report is that the U.S. government <coughs> sent a cable shortly thereafter saying they'd made a mistake. The Yemeni embassy sent a cable to D.C. saying there had been a mistake made. Nobody has ever acknowledged that to Faisal. What they have acknowledged is they've tried to give him $50,000 in unmarked, sequentially <laughs> numbered U.S. dollar bills via the Yemeni intelligence government. He has refused to take it. Um, we also know this gentleman is Ahmed Zaydan. He is a, uh, was the Pakistani bureau chief for Al Jazeera. He's now based out of Doha. In 2000, and I want to say 2014, uh, Ahmed, uh, through the Snowden document, a set of slides were released um, about a program called Skynet. In that program, what we found out is that they were tracking, they were using a program <coughs> called Skynet, an algorithm, to track people's cell phone and metadata and to then identify targets, terrorists in, in Pakistan. This, according to the slide deck, is some of the behaviors they were looking for in the metadata they were tracking, um, everything from turning off your cell phone to visiting airports to traveling. Be really upfront right now, we don't know how they were using the program. We don't know if just because Ahmed wound up on the slide deck, that meant he was going to get killed, or if he wound up on the slide deck, it meant that they were going to monitor him. The People who looked at the program, um, Patrick Ball, who is a well-known data scientist, analyzed the program and said, even with the error rate they're claiming of 0.008% in a country of a billion, that's a huge number of people. <laughs> okay? So we don't know if that error rate was correct. What we do know is there was an error rate. Um, this is the killers I'm going to skip to. In 2017, Ahmed Zaydan, along with this man, Bilal Abdul Karim, brought litigation before the D.C. District Court, um, basically asking the government whether they were trying to kill them and offering to put forward evidence as to why they weren't, shouldn't be killed. So the claim, Bilal here is a journalist working in Syria, um, interviewing a number of individuals, uh, the U.S., would identify as terrorists, not ISIS. So it's convoluted world that is Syria. Important to distinguish these are what used to be rebels, still are rebels, um, but rebels in groups that the U.S. Um, has deemed also a terrorist threat. Uh, Bilal was targeted in five different, what we believe, airstrikes, two of which we think were drones because of the drone presence in the air, three of which we can't confirm whether they were drones or else within a three-month period. Uh, he believes that the targeting 
was potentially because of who he was interviewing, and that, again, he might have been caught up in a metadata-type algorithm that was tracking his cell phones and where he was going. So to, together with Ahmed Zaydan, Bilal uh, brought litigation for the D.C. District Court. <coughs> the, all these guys are asking for is, if you're trying to kill me, please let me put forward evidence <laughs> that you shouldn't be trying to kill me. Tell me what the charges are against me. I'm going to come to court. I'm going to step in court and, and, and try to do this the legal way. Please stop trying to kill me. In Ahmed Zaydan's case, he was, I would argue, rightfully concerned that if he had been labeled a terrorist in a country where there were drone strikes going on, that he potentially was going to get killed in a drone strike. And so what he was seeking was clarity that that was not the case, and if it was, some rights to sort it out. Uh, the legal framework is <laughs> complicated and a mess. Um, and I'm not going to go go there because I think um, we can get into a very long uh, debate about it. But suffice it to say, in the U.S. Um, court system, it's been exceptionally hard to bring these cases, if not impossible. So the chances of Ahmed and Bilal succeeding were always going to be low. And part of the reason for that is because of how the U.S. has responded in the post-9-11 world, but also how the court systems have responded in the post-9-11 world, which is effectively to shut off access to the courts on war on terror issues. Um, in their case, I'm going to go back just a bit. In Bilal and Ahmed Zaydan's case, Ahmed Zaydan got kicked out in June of 2018. Uh, thankfully, and um, the lawyers might understand why I say this, <laughs> Uh, on what was called um, failure to plead a viable claim. Uh, the judge basically said that just because he was on a Skynet, um, Skynet slide saying that he was a terrorist didn't mean the U.S. was trying to kill him and that he didn't actually have evidence the U.S. was trying to kill him. In contrast, Bilal's case, and I should also throw out here, the reason I say thankfully he got thrown out on that is Ahmed's not American, <laughs> Bilal is. This is a really important fact in U.S. courts. Uh, Bilal's case did not get thrown out. Um, Bilal's case went forward because he had already been targeted five times. Um, so the, the general gist of it was you need to actually miss getting killed before we can proceed with your case. I think in reality there was probably a little bit more to it than that, which is the other ground she could have probably tried to kick it out on uh, was his non-American status because ultimately the claims that held to move the case forward were Bilal's constitutional rights as an American. Uh, Bilal's case is now going forward. Um, having ruled that political question did not trump constitutional rights, uh, there was then some back and forth with the judge. And as of um, three weeks ago now, uh, the U.S. government, after a very lengthy delay, has decided to refile their motion to dismiss on state secrets grounds. And they're now moving to basically say that the entire program is enough of a state secret that any sort of disclosure in Bilal's case about his his presence on the list, evidence they have against him, or even if they are trying to kill him, would jeopardize the entire program and therefore is a state secret. Um, what does all of this mean in the context of metadata in these cases? Um, we'll leave aside the accountability in US courts. Um, I think one of the problems with the metadata is under optional additional protocol two, you're presumed a civilian. And there's real questions around how good the algorithms are. Are the algorithms being used on their own to target? Are they being used with something else? Hayden says they're being used on their own. <laughs> Hayden says it's a pure metadata analysis. Do we take him at his word? 
this is where inherently we don't have any transparency. So you, even beginning the discussion becomes problematic, but potentially raises questions about whether you can ever target based purely on metadata, and a discussion we've not had before the advent of big data. Um, algorithms only work if you can verify them and, and alter them to make them more precise. If we're not doing post-strike investigations on the ground, and we're not figuring out who we kill, and we know that the US, by its own admission, labels most people unknown, um, then we're also not adjusting the algorithms, which means we're potentially killing based on much higher rates of error than we even think. Um, Google, the outcry over Google brings into um, the debate more questions about what accountability for new actors. If Google's providing the algorithm, do they have a, do they have a responsibility for making sure the algorithm's right? If uh, someone takes a strike based on an algorithm, is the pilot responsible or the algorithm responsible? These are some of the debates that have been happening in the kind of autonomous weapons sphere, but haven't really been happening in the targeting sphere. Uh, domestic accountability, we don't know. <laughs> There's a, so much we don't know, um, and the government's response is to trust us. In democracies, you don't get to do that. We don't, democracies don't function when governments get to operate blind um, and out of the purview of the domestic population. Um, and then employees. Uh, the Google employees showed they have power. Does that, is that unique to Google? Some might argue it is. Does it extend to other companies? And for people working in the sphere who are pushing for more accountability and transparency, do they provide a new constituency we should be engaging with more? Thank you, Jen. I mean, I say thank you. I'm slightly more terrified than I was 10 minutes ago. I'm um, But, you know, that's fine. That, that's educational at the same point. Um, Liam and Megan, I'm going to hand over to you now. Um, I've got your slides. You'd think I'd be able to recognise them. There we go. Fabulous. You've got the mouse clicker. And you've got Well, thank you very much. I think uh, Aditi's presentation sort of laid out some context about how the British Parliament should be overseeing certain aspects of Britain's military policy overseas. And one of the areas that we were looking at, which came out of some of the research that Abby and Emily did last year, was the role that special forces play. And Paul touched on this earlier in his uh, uh, presentation about the opacity of special forces and how you address that opacity at the moment in the UK. We're going to walk through uh, basically a, a report that we came out with uh, last April. Uh, we're going to look at the growth of special forces, the rationale behind remote warfare, although I think we touched quite a lot of that this morning, um, the status quo in terms of the government's current no-comment policy, why we should now look at modernising the UK's approach, and then Megan's going to talk about... Just a few case studies of how our allies are doing it, how they're approaching transparency for their special forces. Fantastic. So I think we've sort of covered... Uh, how we perceive remote warfare, but this idea of counting threats at a distance, Paul is shaking his head, without the deployment of large <laughs> military forces, of which special forces play a key part. But I think maybe moving aside from that definition of remote warfare to please Paul, is that you have a lot of combination of factors that have led to a situation where the government has looked to more discrete means uh, to deploy forces overseas uh, without putting large number of its own boots on the ground, and special forces are one of those capabilities. So we know post 9-11 um, that special forces have gained greater utility 
Uh, Donald Rumsfeld saw them as a great uh, force to deploy into Afghanistan, Iraq. Uh, it's been dubbed the golden age of, of special forces, and we know between 2001 until 2011, when we were supposed to pull out of Iraq the first time, um, that special forces, special operations command, SOCOM, their numbers went from 45,000 to 58,000, and according to a congressional research report that came out in October 2018, uh, the total size is now size is reported to be around 70,000. Now, you might think, why are you using uh, a US example to talk about the UK context? But one of the reasons for that is, I'll get onto, is that there are obviously much more readily available materials uh, and about numbers of US special forces, where there are a lot more literature about their experiences on deployments, um, and that's kind of why we've got one of these, this, using this as an example. So I talked about the status quo in terms of the current no comment policy, and, and Paul touched on this again this morning in terms of sometimes the government will relax its no comment policy when it suits it, uh, but often the, uh, the government, in response to quest parliamentary questions about special forces, uh, applies the no comment policy where it doesn't talk about um, what, the special, what, their, what UK special forces are doing. And even uh, with regards to when it was announced as part of the Strategic Defence and Security Review back in 2015, uh, where we found out that two billion was being invested in special forces capabilities, even the response that came back from Penny Morton at the time was very, very vague about where this was being placed. Aditi talked about the fact that since 2003 we've moved to a situation where there is an expectation uh, that there should be greater parliamentary accountability, greater legislative accountability of the use of force. And some of the things that we've seen in more recent times is that senior MPs, and you'll notice from here, all Conservatives, uh, for example, the chair of the Intelligence and Security Committee, Blake Grieve, has moved to a position where he, he sees that in a liberal democracy there should be some form of oversight uh, of, of special forces. And speaking as the chair of the Intelligence and Security Committee, we have managed to, to have for over two decades some form of accountability through the IFC of the intelligence agencies. Kristen Blunt, when he was chair of the Foreign Affairs Committee, was frustrated with um, when he did an, his committee did an investigation into um, the Libya campaign about the lack of information that was shared from the government, echoing some of the, the comments made by Dominic Grieve that you raised, Aditi. Um, and as you see here from the script, one of the things that he argues is if it's a, a, a sharply and sharply out operation, um, a direct operation, then there shouldn't necessarily be uh, oversight of that. That should be secret. But if it, they are forming part of a strategy, then there could be an argument for greater oversight of what special forces are doing. Um, and I'm going to touch on Dr. Julie Lewis's point in a minute. Why yes, and we thought that one of the counter-arguments we might get when we release the support is that people come back and say, of course special forces aren't, don't have oversight. That's just the way it is. Um, and we wanted to look into if that was the case in other countries and our allies. So we looked at nine different Western case studies with four in depth. And we found that the UK really does stand out when it comes to its complete lack of, of comments on this um, subject. So I'm going to run through just four case studies very quickly. So first, uh, the US, which as Liam said is often the comparison that's chosen. Um, and it does have a lot more transparency than we have in the UK. So they have the Armed Services Committees, um, which, is, which is responsible for having oversight. And their subcommittees can hold both closed and open hearings, where they often have both the military and the civilian leads of SOF operations. So it's good to have that kind of openness. Um, the Pentagon is mandated by Congress to give a monthly update on their SOF operations to one of the subcommittees. Um, and finally, they also release quite a lot of information about their missions, even when they go wrong, as we saw um, in the Nishir operation in 2017. So even though they don't release 
Um, it's, it's far from the complete transparency. We still have a lot to go, but it is a big way forward from the UK. Um, we do think that there's a little bit of lack of comparability, though, for three reasons. So the, the size and scope of the US military is very different from the British one. Um, it's a very different political system. And then finally, there's a different security clearance system. So in the US, every single member of Congress has security clearance, whereas here, even the chairs of um, some of the committees don't have that. So we wanted to find cases that are a little bit more comparable as we moved on to the European cases, which, yeah. Um, so we looked first at Denmark and Norway, which, as expected, had very high levels of transparency. Um, both countries have parliamentary approval for any missions before they happen. So there's a very strong process of reviewing information about um, SF operations before they occur. There's also a lot of government release of information about what's going on, and there's committees which can have both open and closed hearings. Um, Again, as with the U.S., the military and political systems are a little bit too different to actually have completely comparable um, systems. So whereas the U.S. military is too big, the Danish and Norwegian one might be too small um, to actually have really good comparisons. So we moved on to France, which are, is our most comparable case. Um, they have traditionally echoed British official, officials in saying that they never comment, but in the last decade, since 2008, they've um, improved their transparency tremendously. They had constitutional reforms in 2008, which means that even though the executive still decides when they have operations, they now have to inform the legislative no later than three days after it's occurred. Um, they also have committees which can hold both open and closed hearings, and they've done that in the past with leaders of, of the SOF um, and have had a lot of information come out of that. The government also has opened up its policy, and they're t talking a lot more about what's going on and what their objectives are and their missions um, and their equipment and stuff like that. So we do think, like, even though we're not arguing for complete transparency in any way, but we do think that there's a case for being able to have more transparency without compromising your, your missions. So we're just going to run through some of the policy options that we came up with. So I suppose I sort of alluded to it, one of them being expanding the Intelligence and Security Committee in Parliament that already has security clearance to look at the um, in Britain's intelligence agencies. And I think one of the arguments that has come up from uh, people that we've spoken to primarily, or one of the most prominent ones is Sir Michael McMurrifkind, was that the intelligence agencies are arguably even more secretive than what special forces do. And yet there has been oversight of the intelligence agencies for over 20 years. I think the ISC is something that may be more palatable to the government because it has built up a very strong relationship with the executive. It's also usually the case that members of this committee have had former experience serving as ministers. They've had access to... Uh, uh, classified information, so they have an understanding of how that should be handled. There are obviously a number of challenges in terms of resourcing, cost. Uh, would this require an, uh, an amendment to the Justice and Security Act? Um, and of course, there are criticisms of the ISC itself at the moment. Therefore, are you going to address some of the concerns that we have raised already by mandating the ISC to look at special forces? And I'm just going to quickly say that in the, the long term, we see and kind of linking to what Aditi was saying about the, the future trajectory of the relationship between the British Parliament and the executive. We feel that in the longer term, it will be much more positive when you've seen the development of the, defense, the, the parliamentary committees in Parliament, um, moving towards a situation where they're, they're much more robust in the criticism, the evidence-based analysis that they provide about government policy. Um, and therefore, could you go to a, a move towards a position where members of the committee, maybe as senior members of the committee, could be provided with security clearance, a subcommittee could be provided with security clearance? Um, and of course, there are challenges with this, because if you allow for 
the Defence Committee to have oversight of Special Forces. Uh, of course, Special Forces form part of the Ministry of Defence responsibility, so it makes sense for Defence Committee to have oversight of them. Would you then have debates about whether the Foreign Affairs Select Committee, the Home Affairs Committee, should have uh, respective oversight of MI5, MI6? And I think it's looking at those concerns that might be expressed from, from government in the future about if you open up the Pandora's box in terms of allowing the uh, Defence Committee, a step change in the current policy, would that then lead to push uh, for further oversight among the other committees? And I'm just going to leave Megan to talk about our additional recommendations. Well. Yeah, so that's final recommendation. Um, it's perhaps the most straight, straightforward one is just to re- like to relax the no-comment policy. Um, as we saw with the other examples, you can have transparency without compromising your missions, so we think there is a, a case for that. Um, having Parliament access more information would also help them allow, like, ensure that it's... Um, part of a wider strategy that is not just chosen because it's a quick, easy option, but it actually works as part of the strategy. And finally, we think that allowing government to really talk about this would allow them to own the narrative instead of leaving it to the media or enemy forces as it's currently being done, but actually to talk about what's being done by special forces and how they're contributing. Thank you very much. Look forward to questions. Fantastic. Thanks, guys. And last but definitely not least, we're moving straight on to Yvonne so that we can open this up for discussion. There we go. Thank you. So it is always hard to talk last because people tend to get tired. And today's challenge is even bigger because the previous speaker have done an amazing job and delivered what I think have been some amazing presentations. Um, Having said that, this final presentation will focus on remote warfare in the context of interstate warfare. Uh, In particular, it will examine whether regime type, in other words, whether it being a democracy or an autocracy, uh, affects government's thinking when sponsoring rebel or insurgent groups to affect a a conflict's outcome. So delegating warfare rather than employing a state's owned armed forces is not not new. Yet since 2011, when the war in Syria erupted, it has drawn uh, more attention as various governments, like for example Iran, have been involved not only directly but also indirectly. However, Syria is just an example and um, uh, there are other conflicts in Yemen and multiple other conflicts in Asia and Africa which have attracted uh, foreign governments. So to better understand whether regime type has an impact on a government's calculations to delegate force to armed uh, forces, to rebel forces, rather than engage uh, in direct confrontation with their international uh, rivals, it is important to define the terms under consideration, explain the rationale behind certain assumptions, and discuss the data that would allow us to draw some correlations between the variables. And although IISS we captured the military capabilities of governments and rebel forces, this presentation will uh, be a bit more theoretical and different from the previous ones, admittedly. So to, uh, by the end of this presentation, we will conclude that contrary to my expectations, autocracies are more likely to delegate force to rebel forces than democracies. And I haven't been able to establish causality due to the nature of the data I was dealing with, but I have been able to draw some correlations. Uh, to that end, I'm open to your ideas as to how to improve the statistical analysis part. So I might be using delegation and proxy warfare interchangeably, but I refer to the same concept. So 
Since uh, the 1990s, interstate conflict defined as a deadly armed conflict between military forces of national states has been declining. And although a lot of ink has been spilled in an attempt to account for the declining interstate warfare, the literature has been assessing uh, this phenomenon, adopting a, a state-centric view, mainly citing liberalism and the rise of the unipolar world. So while this uh, approach is useful, it fails to acknowledge and capture the phenomenon of indirect interstate warfare uh, through war delegation to rebel forces. So what is uh, delegation of war or proxy warfare and why does it matter? States toolbox encompasses various foreign policy tools that also involve indirect strategies like funding, harboring and sponsoring rebel uh, organizations. Indeed, governments may attack international enemies without directly employing their own armed forces, avoiding in this way the normative constraints as well as the costs associated with direct military confrontation. Delegation or proxy warfare is a method, therefore, of confrontation with international rivals, exerting control over rebels' aims, strategies and tactics to various extents. Understanding the aforementioned dynamics could play a vital role in potentially correcting the estimated presence of interstate war and shed some light on the theoretical important conflict dynamics as well as states thinking with regards to proxy warfare. So regime type has a profound impact on government's policies. Evidently, although democratic leaders depend upon providing public goods, to remain in office, autocrats have to offer, as, uh, offer pub private goods to a small number of individuals, being the elites. The democratic electorate is guaranteed by the constitution an ability to punish or reward its leaders depending on performance, with leaders being therefore sensitive to public opinion. Thus, a poor educational or inadequate uh, health system could hinder the democratic leaders' chances of being re-elected. On the contrary, autocratic uh, leaders are never up for selection. They can, of course, be ousted, uh, yet such an attempt comes with severe risks and costs and that act as barriers for those considering such an action. So similarly to the aforementioned examples, we can assume that this theory holds in foreign affairs too. In that sense, we can treat post uh, treat post-conflict events, and in particular conflict outcomes, as public goods. Consequently, high military and pecuniary costs could lead the incumbent to political defeat. According to Tinjeris, and I quote, the democratic electorate's superior ability to punish the leader hold the implication that the state leader in, democ in a democracy would be comparatively less inclined to attack a foreign country, unless they are certain that the war would result in a victory. To that end, there is a negative relationship between democratic uh, regimes and war initiation. In other words, the higher the audience costs are, the less likely the governments would be to employ their own military forces. On the other hand, autocracies, due to insufficient audience costs and a limited risk of being uh, ousted, even in the case of defeat, initiate wars more often. And the disparity between audience costs in democracies and, and autocracies is demonstrated, for example, if we take into account the impact the Gulf War had on Saddam Hussein and the Tet Offensive in Vietnam uh, on Lyndon Johnson. Yet the initiatives to get involved in a conflict and Mendel uh, in other states' internal affairs uh, do not uh, disappear. 
democracies could still be interested in determining the outcome of a conflict, but they may employ different strategies. Yet since the political survivor, uh, survival of the, of the leader is endogenous and depends on the regime type and conflict outcomes, democracies where the population is, is able to credibly publish the leaders for failing to provide public goods, like uh, peace or victory in international confrontation, are expected to employ alternative methods to direct confrontation. So delegating war to rebel organizations operating in the enemy's territory is most commonly is the most commonly used method employed by states to avoid the costs and direct confrontation that direct confrontation entails. In proxy warfare, external actors shape the insurgency and may control its aims and strategies. What appears to be more important, though, is that delegation acts as a cost-saving uh, device, not only militarily, economically, but also politically in terms of preserving the power of leaders who would have otherwise suffered grave political costs. Because the, dispar because the disparity between uh, democracies and autocracies when it comes to foreign policy and regime responsiveness to casualties and pecuniary costs is undeniably uh, severely uneven, the political costs inflicted upon democracies are higher than those in autocracies. To that end, democratic leaders are purposive actors whose actions are shaped by the electorate in pursuit of remaining in office would face more incentives to hide their actions. Undeniably, they would attempt to foster ambiguity about the origins of the conflict so that they would avoid the blame. Indeed, because rebels are domestic actors with local ties, casual ambiguity about the origins of the insurgency, as well as uncertainty about the nature of foreign um, direction and support, does not establish clear culpability in the same manner that open direct confrontation does. Therefore, secrecy can be advantageous with sponsorship being provided behind the scenes, where information is hidden from the critical domestic audience. Consequently, we would expect democracies to be more likely to use indirect strategies when attacking their international enemies. Therefore, my hypothesis uh, could be summarized as follows. The likelihood of indirect confrontation and rebel sponsorship in international systems is higher among democracies than autocracies. <laughs> So in an attempt to capture the overlooked yet significant cases of uh, indirect interstate conflict, I use the non-state actors dataset. The NSA provides information on foreign sponsorship for all active rebel organizations from 1946 to 2010, mentioning the name of the government sponsoring, the name of the rebel organization, as well as the nature of the support provided. Although this is the best available data set, it is subject to one important limitation. Delegation is often secretive, uh, and because states are concerned about international retaliation, condemnation, or sanctions, the data set may fail to capture all instances of sponsorship. And inability to account for all of those instances leads to omitted verbal bias. Another problem with the data uh, that limits our ability to establish causality is the fact that to run a regression, you need variation in your variables. Although when states engage in proxy warfare, they could be either democracies or autocracies, meaning that the dependent variable could, be, could take values one or zero, when there is no delegation, uh, there is no state sponsoring rebels and therefore no corresponding regime type. To that end, we were unable to run a logit regression. Under that reason, 
uh, we were unable to draw causality. Nevertheless, we can draw some broad conclusions deriving from the correlation that stems from the data. So when examining the data empirically, we could deduce that out of the 180 rebel groups that were sponsored by foreign governments, counter to my expectations, most of them were uh, sponsored by autocracies. In fact, 128 autocracies delegated to rebel forces between 1946 to 2010, compared to the 52 democracies. As I have already mentioned, delegation is often secretive, and the data set may fail to capture all incidents of sponsorship. This inability leads to omitted variable bias, but also limits our ability to establish causality. Turning to the nature now of proxy warfare, when states delegate to rebel forces out of the 180 rebel groups, uh, 46 received military assistance, 24 received non-military assistance, and 17 received troops from the sponsoring for foreign states. So in a nutshell, contrary to my expectations, autocracies are more likely to engage in proxy warfare than democracies. And when trying to make sense of those results, it could be argued that autocracies uh, may delegate, to, delegate war to rebel forces because conflicts tend to occur in their vicinity and therefore have more reasons uh, to affect the result. They have incentives to determine the outcome in fear of spillover effects or a desire to influence the leadership post-war. Additionally, they will be more likely to intervene via proxies in another state's uh, internal affairs because they are less interested in upholding and respecting international law. So when delegation does occur, regardless of foreign state's regime type, it mostly happens in the form of military support. The outcome of this research is expected to help policymakers and international uh, organizations dealing with conflict prevention as well as early warnings. Although testing and retesting is vital to establish links and relations, this presentation has set the ground for more empirical uh, research in the study of war delegation and indirect uh, interstate conflict. And being at what appears to be more of an academic conference, I would like to pick your brains as to how to improve this study and in particular uh, for advice with regards to the statistical analysis part. Thank you. much to some really fantastic panels. I'm going to pause the recording now so that we can open it up to questions and answers.